Hello, and welcome to Radical Exchange Replayed. This week, we bring you a conversation from January 2021 called Data Agency, Individual or Shared. Features Jennifer Marone, me, Matt Pruitt, Nick Vincent, and Kalia Young, all of whom will be introduced in more detail by Jennifer in just a moment. This conversation is a good introduction to the difficult question of what sort of agent or institution should be exercising decisional power over data. I hope you enjoy it as much as I enjoyed participating in it. And thanks for listening. Hi, everyone. Thanks for joining. This is a panel called Data Agency, Individual or Shared. I'm joined today by Kalia Young, Nick Vincent, and Matt Pruitt. Joined today We're going to be talking about managing and protecting data against centralized power of digital networks. I'm first going to introduce the speakers, and then they're going to each speak a little bit about what they're working on and why this is important to them and us. And then we're going to have a discussion. So Kalia Young, also known as Identity Woman, has spent the last 15 years working to bring about the creation of a new layer of the internet for people based on open standards. She co-founded the Internet Identity Workshop, which was held a few months ago, and it was also profiled very recently in Wired UK. In 2017, she graduated in the, first, the very first cohort from UT Austin's iSchool with a Master's of Science in Identity Management and Security. Her master's thesis, The Domains of Identity, a Framework for Understanding Identity Systems in Contemporary Society, is being published this month by Anthem Press. In 2019, she traveled to India for two months as a New America India U.S. Public Interest Technology Fellow to study ADHA, their national identity system. She co-founded Human First Tech with Shireen Mitchell, a project focused on creating space for diverse voices and building a more inclusive industry. In 2012, she was recognized as a young global leader by the World Economic Forum and Fast Company named her as one of the most influential women in tech in 2019. She consults with governments, NGOs, startups, and enterprises on decentralized identity technologies. And we have Nick Vincent, who is a PhD student in Northwestern University's Technology and Social Behavior Program and is part of the People, Space, and Algorithms Research Group. His broad research interests include human-computer interaction, human-centered machine learning, and social computing. His research focuses on studying the relationships between human-generated data and computing technologies to mitigate negative impacts of these technologies. His work relates to concepts such as data dignity, data as labor, data leverage, and data dividends. And we have Matt Pruitt, who many of you will know. Matt is Radical Exchange Foundation's president, a writer and blockchain industry advisor, and a former plaintiff side antitrust and consumer action litigator and federal law clerk. I'm Jennifer Marone. I'll be the moderator. I'm CEO of Radical Exchange Foundation. I'm an artist and also a filmmaker. So to kick this off, Kalia, you've been focused very much on self-sovereign identity. Can you tell us more about that and how it fits in also with ideas of intersectional identity? Sure. The self-sovereign identity, um, so I think there, it's important to understand there are some folks who use the term and talk about big ideas associated with it. And then there's a sort of practical side of what that means in terms of building real technologies and open standards. And my work really focuses much more on the practical side of supporting the technologists working on developing the open standards. Um, so I'll describe a little bit about what it will practically mean if when we get to SSI, which I think we're on the cusp of, which is that individuals can 
have an anchor, a, a digital identifier in which to enter and engage with digital space that they own and control that isn't given to them by another entity. So one of the challenges that we have in the current digital world is that our identifiers are assigned to us by other entities. So when we are in Twitter, we have a handle, but it's under Twitter. And when we're at Gmail, we have a handle under Gmail. And when we're at Facebook, we have a, a name, but it's under Facebook's namespace. So until we actually enable people to own their own digital node, their own digital representation of themselves without another entity assigning it to them, we can't really shift the power paradigm that's going on with tech. So that's one piece of it. And another is this new open standard called verifiable credentials that allows any entity to package up information and share it with the individual. And then the individual can in turn share it with whoever they choose to. And, and it's all based on a, it's a data format and it's an open standard. So it has a, a wide range of expressive capacity. So it could be used by all sorts of innovative people and companies to really change how they're interacting with their customers or their users or their community members, however we want to frame folks who are connecting to each other on the internet. And, and that in terms of this conversation about data ownership, how do you know where the data came from? Unless it's signed, it's really hard to have provenance because I could get data, put it in my data store, change it all around and then share it. But why should the entity I'm sharing with it believe it unless it's packaged up and signed in a way that's believable? So there's several things that come out of this technology that I think really enable new paradigms that, that we're discussing here about how data is exchanged and given back to people in empowering ways. Actually, let's maybe step back. First, I want to set the stage a bit of where we all think we are in terms of the data problem. Do you want to each take a take like a little moment to express how you feel the situation is right now and the biggest hurdle, the biggest problem we face? Um, sure. So I guess the kind of my my take on what what's the what's the problem or what's the uh, the concerning future that we might want to be a little worried about is that the. The status quo for people using online platforms and, and technologies from big tech companies right now is that you can go online and get a lot of free services. But the reason is because you're generating data all the time. Or one of the reasons is that you're generating data all the time that's used for a lot of things. Like primarily, uh, tar well, targeted advertising is a big one. That's the primary, a primary revenue source for a lot of tech companies. But it's not the only thing. There's a lot of other types of data that are used to fuel all sorts of technologies. Um, and right now, it's really, uh, it's really opaque. It's hard to know how much value each individual is generating. It's hard to know even how many companies might be generating from a particular action that you took. Um, but this is really exciting. And so there's this idea that we maybe should be thinking of data as labor. Um, and I think that's not that's pretty familiar to, to this crowd or to folks who've been uh, following radical exchange for a while. And I, I guess the, prob the, the problem would be, what if we can never change that status quo and we just kind of go on forever with uh, large companies and large firms accumulating more power, basically setting all the rules of engagement for, for data and uh, not really allowing individual people or groups of people to, to make choices, getting to the theme of this individual versus shared. And yeah, I, I guess my research is kind of exploring some ways that we might avoid that particular future. And I can talk more about that later, but that's the short version. <laughs> Thanks. Matt, do you want to go? Sure. Yeah. I think, I think what I, what I have to say about this is quite similar to what, what Nick said. Um, I mean, I've, I've spent much of the last two years working with, um, Lots of great researchers, including Nick and, and Kalia, on um, 
on this problem of essentially, as as Nick was saying, uh, the way that I look at it is that you know the data that we are all creating through our living our lives on devices and interacting with each other on digital networks is this kind of vast interconnected collective collective asset that we're all engaged in uh, in creating. But when we try to sort of get value from it or get control of it as individuals, we're faced with this sort of enormous uh, failure of coordination so that um, so that you know n- none of us really have traction on, on this asset so we're not we're really not enjoying very much of the benefit of it by contrast um, the you know private companies that own the networks through which we're interacting are in a position to um, to extract an enormous amount of of value from it and to an ex- and to exert enormous amount of control um, over us through the way that they're positioned and uh, th- so this is this is a problem that worries me enormously and that I don't think will fix itself and in fact it's likely to just to, to get worse if left alone and so that you know I'm engaged in, in trying to come up with different different solutions to this and Kalia do you have a I mean I agree with um, both of the the other panelists. And I also, one of the things that has surfaced is this tension, right, between the individual and their own personal ownership and sort of these, the potential, well, one, right now, it's like the collective of whatever the company pulls together, but you know, how do individuals aggregate their data and their power together to change this? And, you know, I, I think it's a harder it's easy to talk about, and I think it's going to be harder technically to implement. But I think until we get data ownership for people and get that infrastructure built, we can't do collective ownership really. So it's you know how do we how do we how do we create the tools for people to really get their data back? Or I don't know if they ever had it, but to sort of rewire these systems and then move to and how do they act together with their newly found individual control and empowerment. So I don't know if um, anybody in the audience is familiar with my project that I had started. It was a protest art piece back in 2013. And it was where I was coming up against Snowden's revelations, seeing that data was becoming very valuable and that corporations at the time, there was no GDPR, were the only entities that could do anything to control or protect their data. And so I incorporated my identity and used that legal container to put my data. It was a provocation though as well. It wasn't that I really thought that was the way everybody should do it and that it was a little bit more looking at data from the individual level, everything that came from me or was about me and to try and show how futile that was to try and get control and ownership over that, especially against these big tech giants. And, you know, you'd be litigating everywhere. It wouldn't, <laughs> unless you're as strong and powerful as them, it just doesn't work. And so the eventual conclusion in that project, which isn't often seen, I think, is that it ultimately has to come from a collective like a commons or a cooperative, or we have to like put it together. And that's the only way it's really valuable. As Nick, you've written a lot about, and Matt as well, in terms of um, looking at the economic aspect of it. So 
I guess I don't disagree with you, Kalia, about the, I think the awareness needs to come that we see it as valuable and we kind of own the fact that it should belong to, or belong, I think is the wrong word. It's like, it should be used for the public good. And we all have a stake in that. And we all have conscious contribution or is, you know, what's passive, what's active, what's intentional, unintentional. And then like, what is, what is worth doing and how to have control over that. And I say, I don't know if that might be a good way in terms of this individual or shared, a good way to kind of get the conversation going. And Nick, I know you've done a lot of work in this field. Do you have anything that that sparks in your mind? Yeah, so I guess I had a couple of thoughts that I that I thought would be pretty interesting for this debate. Um, so one like one way that I've thought about approaching the individual versus shared question is is through the lens of like specific machine learning technologies. So I think one question that arises from the whole uh, kind of area of thinking around data as labor and data dignity and uh, the idea that maybe we should be remunerated for data or have more agency over data um, is this question of well, how much does my data matter? Um, so I, I might tell you, oh, well, your your all your data is being used to fuel these amazing AI technologies and search engines and recommendations and ad targeting and facial recognition and maybe even self-driving cars soon. And you'd say, okay, well, how, how much do, does do I matter? So that kind of translates to this very uh, answerable question, which is actually you have some data set. There's a thousand people who all contributed their data to let's say a recommender system, and then you delete one person's data and and retrain it from scratch. So it's kind of like creating this counterfactual universe where that individual no longer contributed their data. And you compare those two. And, and that uh, machine learning like research, the kind of research methods that folks in machine learning use, is perfectly set up to answer that question. And actually, this, this whole question of uh, what are computational techniques for finding the value of an individual's contribution to uh, data or a particular machine learning task was really reinvigorated in, in 2017, the best paper award at the NeurIPS conference, which is one of the, the, one of the top most prestigious machine learning conferences, was about answering this question in a really computationally efficient manner. And since then, uh, there's been a ton, ton of work kind of following off of that. Interestingly, it kind of was building off some stats work from the 80s, uh, but kind of reinvigorated it. And uh, basically, the point is that we can do this now. There, there's cool techniques for doing this. So you can imagine doing this at scale, trying to figure out how much the value of a lot of individuals' uh, data contributions are to specific machine learning technologies. But at the end of the day, and again, this won't be surprising to anyone in machine learning, basically, no individual actually matters, right? So any system that has 100,000 users contributing data to it none of the individuals actually make a really, really a noticeable difference uh, in like in any sort of aggregate performance measures. So that's really interesting to me because uh, that's kind of like a, if you just look at this data, if you look at these values, these like these credit values, if you will, empirically, it's just not, basically, there's just no way to really shift the needle on these machine learning systems without collective power. So, so to me, that kind of suggests this, uh, maybe obvious to some conclusion, but maybe not that any sort of uh, kind of movement or attempts to exert power, what we've called in our research data leverage, really requires collective action. It has to be a collective effort because machine learning doesn't care about individuals. That's both like kind of the blessing and the curse of machine learning and I guess AI more broadly. Um, so yeah, that's just kind of one, one thought that I wanted to share along those lines. I'll share that I think this question of how we talk about it is important, right? In terms of, is it about the term ownership or is it about the term rights and responsibilities and resource management. So one of the one of the folks in in my community, Scott David, has proposed that we look at natural resource law, which manages, you know, 
how we how we address like rivers and the air as potentially a one of the the legal frameworks for thinking about data that's really quite different than an ownership frame, which is anchored in physical property. And the fact that, you know, if I have my hair barrette and I give it to you, Jennifer, it's no longer mine. But if this was a data representation of this and I gave it to you, we both could have a data representation that there's this difference between atoms and bits and how we think about managing them. We need to not ground it in conventional property law. But I, I'm going <laughs> to toss them all over to Matt because he's the lawyer on the panel to, to maybe take it from there. Well, I think that what you're getting at, Kalia, is really important. And what strikes me is that in in a, a lot of um, in a lot of conversations about data, even including with people who think about it a lot and think about it professionally, there are very very easy ways to misunderstand each other and to talk past each other. Um, it's it's an incredibly difficult and abstract idea, and and I think that one of the ways that we often talk past each other is is uh, is in this idea of my data or just the concept of like what it means for data to be mine. So in other words, you know, one way of thinking about what that means is like, it is that there's, there's certain information that I have under my control that I can contribute to a system because it's under my control. And so just in, just in ordinary English speech, you could say that's my data, but then there's, you can also look sort of deeper and ask like, where did that data come from? Like whose, whose data is that really? So if I, for example, if I have data under my control, it may not all be about me. It may be about other people. And in fact, if you take a magnifying glass to all of the, all of the information that I have that I might even consider to be very much about me, it also is about other people because the facts of my life are inextricable from the facts, from facts about other people's lives. So, and and this might seem this might seem really abstract or it might seem like I'm starting to get into some sort of like edge case of like, you know, you know, most data, most data can clearly be understood as either mine or yours or, or, or Nick's or Jen's. Right. But, you know, maybe there's a few cases where it sort of overlaps. Like I actually think that the, that the, it sort of turtles all the way down. This is a, this rabbit hole goes pretty deep. And in, in fact, like, Almost everything you can meaningfully say about me isn't only about me, um, and, and this this is because I form my identity in a social context. I mean, it's it's that's it, it, at the end of the day, it, it's it, that it's it's just based on that simple fact that you know wh- whatever the the preferences I have, the things I like to do, the things I like to buy the relationships that I've formed, all of these are unimaginable without the social context uh, from which I, you know, in which I find myself and, and which has formed me. And, and so I think that, you know, when we talk about, when we talk about collective control over data and the need for sort of shared control over data, you know, one, one way of understanding that is that, well, we'll just never have any leverage over, over uh, Google. Um, if we don't band together. So that's why we need to band together, right? And that's true. But then the other the other side of the coin, which is also true, is that on some sort of moral level, we need to have shared control over uh, over information because 
whatever control we exert over our information has consequences for other people. So, so in other words, you know, you know, whenever I disclose things about myself, I'm also disclosing things about others, which means that, um, which means that it's not only about, it's not only about power. It is about power, but it's not only about power. When I share data, or you know, try to try to control it, or try to get something in exchange for it, it's also about responsibility. So that you know, if I'm going to share a bunch of information, from, quote unquote, about myself, or you know, put it more accurately, share a bunch of information under my control, that's going to have consequences for people around me, and on on a on a moral level as well as on sort of a power dynamics level. I ought to be making a decision with them, with others, um, about what I do with with you know the trove of data that's on my you know hard drive and on my phone and whatever. We are the authors of each other, right? And um, the African concept of Ubuntu, like I am because we are, you know. Yeah, totally. I mean, this this stuff starts to sound a little bit you know, far out or something, but it's not, it's just, it, you know, I, we, like we need to, I think that this, this little sort of decentering of, of, of our thinking about, about, uh, who we are and what is ours is needed to get a clear understanding of what's going on in the data economy and what data just ontologically like is. So there's a question for you, Matt, about digital passports. Who would you say owns the data on that passport, the individual or the issuer of the passport or both? I think there's a question in there in terms of the, there's a hole missing. There's a whole citizenry, the public. It doesn't belong to the public. The information in that passport is basically given to us. Does that kind of feature into what you're saying, Matt? Yeah. I mean, the, you know, the, I can talk about a digital passport in a second, but even if you just think about a traditional passport, issued by the by the government if you think about the information in that passport it's better understood not as something that is mine but as something that is but as a connection between me and the government that issued it and the community the democratic community that may or may not have authority over that government and the you know the the information Something like my name is also the name of other people in my family. You know, my surname is happens to be also my father's surname. If you know my date of birth, you know you might be able to guess, you know, some passwords of my cousins or something like that. Like, you know, so all of the information that is is on that passport connects me to my community in various ways, and in a properly constructed digital passport, properly conceived digital passport would do the same thing, would link me to to a context within the digital world. Would you each consider data as a form of rent-seeking? Yeah. The current structure of what's going on is a rent-seeking that's really exploitive and sort of driving bad social outcomes. So it's even, it's like it's gone to the point of like being maybe something that was good or neutral to something that's actually causing societal harms and now we have to (laughs) run faster to fix it but i mean folks have been warning about these outcomes for a long time and i don't know that we've been listening so i mean i think that a powerful way of of understanding what rent seeking is is that you know rent is sort of like 
scraping off the surplus value that are created by network effects. And I, th- I think it's a, a fairly general way of understanding what many different kinds of rent are. And I, th- and I think this is a, a, a good way of understanding what sort of data exploiting platform type businesses are doing because they are facilitating the creation of lots of interconnections and, and links and interactions between people. So they're sort of facilitating this growth of a huge network of connections between people. And then they're sort of using their, their privileged access to that network for profit and, and control. So yeah, I mean, sh- you know, sh- short answer, I, I think that it's, it is a form of, of rent seeking and these, the kinds of collective bargaining type solutions and data leverage type solutions that Nick was alluding to these, you know, ideas for sort of rebalancing the power dynamic within these networks are aimed at redistributing that rent or that, or that control, or that sort of privileged control over the network. Matt, you and Kalia both worked on a year ago. You got together some people and split up into two groups, one working on the Data Freedom Act, which has, I think, in the leaked version of the Data Governance Act that came out recently, was inspired by the work that you did. The more recent version, the not leaked version, changed quite a bit. And I think it might be a good time because you're talking about collective bargaining and you know these data agreements and It'd probably be a good moment to talk about that. And then Nick, if you could talk as you went into the other group that was looking at data tax, data dividend, and if you could speak about those and try and, if you can, speak about them in like a real life example sort of way, or you could just tell us about what, what was in each of those. Matt, do you want to keep going? Sure. So I, th- I think that the Data Freedom Act white paper sort of policy proposal that we worked on. I'll describe that briefly, and then I'll, I'll hand it to Nick to talk about the data dividends work, I think. But the Data Freedom Act proposal is basically a proposal to create a regulatory environment that would facilitate data intermediaries arising and acting as sort of collective bargaining representatives for people in their digital lives. And the way of, I think the, the, the best way of seeing the kind of vision behind Data Freedom Act is to, is to imagine the sort of the end game or the consequences of it. So if something like the Data Freedom Act were in place, what would happen would, would be that platform businesses like your Facebook or whatever, in order to use the data of their users, in order to sort of, ex, you know, exploit the vast amounts of, of user data that, that they have access to, they would need to strike deals with these intermediaries, these sort of specialized, regulated, uh, collective bargaining agents who you know owe fiduciary duties to to the users. So you know, Facebook would be sort of sitting across the table from uh, from an agent representing many many users at once in order to get the privilege of of exploiting that data. And so that you know that collective bargaining agent could negotiate things like rules about. What sorts of algorithms Facebook would be able to um, to feed the data into? What sorts of products they'd be able to push to the users? Could potentially also negotiate things like revenue sharing or payment, so that you know the vast amount of revenue and potential you know the vast amount of, of profit and value that's in Facebook's shares and all that would be split between Facebook and its users, basically. You know, but in order for that to happen, you know, we would need to sort of set up a reasonably complex infrastructure of regulated collective bargaining entities that would be acting on behalf of users. And uh, the Data Freedom Act basically thinks through all of all of the things from from A to Z in terms of you know what what would we really need to get from 
from where we are now, where we're all just kind of clicking checkboxes and giving away data on, a, on an individualized, uncoordinated basis to a world in which we were acting on behalf of intermediaries that could handle the complexity for us and, and also exert our collective power. Nick, do you want to? Yeah, I'll swing it over. So I'll just start by saying that what I'm going to describe is very much complementary to that. And this is not like a either or situation or, or competing proposals at all. Um, so the idea behind the data dividends report is that it was specifically uh, inspired by the 2019 California state of the state speech in which the governor basically said, I'm interested in doing something called a data dividend that would be, uh, in some sense, give people value for their data. There's a couple, just like two lines. So we're kind of interpolating a little bit there. And we basically a group, a huge group, uh, tons of people kind of filtering in and out, lots of just like feedback, really a great collective effort wanted to answer the question, if California was going to implement something called a data dividend tomorrow, what would it look like? And they have to be able to do it tomorrow. We also wanted to think about how would it adapt in the long term and what would maybe the fancy, the you know, science fiction version look like? What would the version in five years look like? But we really wanted it to work tomorrow. And so what we came up with was that basically there's kind of like four components. So the government would, uh, the state government would impose a uh, data dependent, some sort of data dependence tax. So basically a tax that says the more the larger the network of people that you're exploiting their data, the more you pay into this fund. Um, and then rather than trying to pay people individual uh, paychecks, so a huge criticism of this data, there's a, there's a lot of criticisms, of criticisms of the data dividends idea. I think we have some pretty good responses to the main ones. I should also add, if anyone wants to read about this, uh, datadividends.org. We have a nice little website. There's a short summary version and there's an older draft on there. And we're going to have a new draft coming out soon. Uh, so lots of exciting stuff that has some updates, especially because this is an active area of discussion and, and regulation even. So back to what's, what's going on in our report. So we say data dependence tax. Um, we say, don't try to give people paychecks. If, we're, if you're going to institute it tomorrow, uh, one of the big criticisms is that, okay, great. Everyone gets a $20 paycheck um, because of their contributions to Facebook's targeted advertising algorithms. That probably won't create wide-scale societal change or immediately you know, create solutions to the, to the many harms that we're worried about. Uh, so instead, we basically suggest in the short term, do targeted things. So fund public goods, uh, fund infrastructure, particularly maybe infrastructure that allows for more access to, to the benefits of uh, digital technology, and also fund things that have long-term benefits, like uh, baby bonds is one of the ideas we floated. So we don't have, we're not married to any specific idea. We lay out a bunch, but basically it's, it's public goods, not individual paychecks, if you're going to do it tomorrow. Now, if you're going to do it in 10 years, maybe in 10 years, not everyone's not getting $20 for their Facebook anymore. They're getting a lot more money. And that's where the, the paycheck idea might come in. But starting tomorrow, don't do it. Um, we've also, we've used some of those techniques from, or so my lab has done some research using techniques from the machine learning literature to answer this question of, okay, what if we tried to calculate exactly how, how much did you contribute to the machine learning technology? How much did you contribute? How much did you contribute? And use those uh, scores to assign people money. And basically, it's really easy if you do that, which sounds appealing. It sounds really exciting if you're a machine learning researcher. It's like, wow, that's so cool. I really want to do that. It's really easy to create uh, really unequal outcomes and actually potentially uh, exacerbate inequality even more. Uh, so we don't really suggest that either. Uh, and then finally, we, we recommend the creation of a data relations board that would basically uh, help to conduct research and kind of adjudicate the many... There's going to be a lot of questions that arise uh, in, this, in this sphere. And then also could conduct research that kind of looks to make things like data unions or uh, other cooperative entities more possible and do things like support collective bargaining via data and, and other things like that. So these kind of segue into each other. I guess our, our version, the data dividends report is really focused on something that could happen tomorrow. And maybe the having cooperative and collectives is more of a long-term solution. Yeah, and I think the data dividends report 
takes a very rigorous look at this idea of uh, network rents in connection with data, basically, and suggests a really good way of counterbalancing the fact that essentially, if you control larger networks of people through like a digital platform, you're in position to exact a more harmful rent from the public. And um, the data dividends report gets at that problem really elegantly. Um, I want to share the fact that we actually had um, somebody running for Congress on a platform around this, James Felton Keith. And he, I, I mean, when I, I wasn't really following fully the arguments he was making, and then all of a sudden it clicked and he was like, look, all large companies today, not just the ones that are quote unquote digital, but think about like Amazon or even GE or like just, you know, the Fortune 500 is making money off of data because it's using it to help it run. And he's like, we should be taxing those companies because they're using our data. Like it's a really different frame on why taxation is important and like the reasoning behind it and how to feed that back into society because they're using our data to run their you know run their businesses and to make money they should be taxed because it's our data and it should come back to us to help you know help build society i agree completely with james felton keith and Kalia. one thing that comes to mind especially with the data dividend so that's a state solution what's going to make the companies do that is the state going to make them pay the dividends just to stay in california would they move somewhere else what if we're not in California? What about me in New Jersey? If I'm on Facebook, do you get the value of my data? Does my data contribution go to your public infrastructure or to your data dividend check? You know, like what happens there? Is it something where California is going to take the lead in doing this and then others will follow suit? Or will there be just like tax havens where the company is going to move to the Bahamas because they don't care and you don't, they're not going to make you pay these data dividends. Like, how does that? Yeah, so actually we have, we have answers for both of those. Um, and uh, I'll do the short version. So the, the best version is, is in the report, um, and I can't recite it from memory. But the short version is that we want to lean on basically existing experts in solving these two problems. So there's kind of two problems here. Problem one is how do we know if you're kind of in the state? How do you know if you count as a California resident? And then problem two is what do we do? Like, obviously, every corporation is going to do their best to pay as little tax as possible. So what, how do we deal with that? And on the tax front, there's actually, uh, there's kind of a, a nice thing going on, which is that the, some of the latest research in kind of addressing tax havens suggests this uh, like global sales apportion tax approach. That's actually what California does for the corporate income tax already. And so there's probably, because this would be new, the state dependence tax would be new, there's a good opportunity to kind of implement the cutting edge. And, uh, and even experiment a little bit because, because it's new. And so basically we say, look to those experts in, in that field and kind of uh, uh, experiment a little bit and, and uh, take that approach. In terms of the, do you count as a California resident? How do I know? So I'm a company. How do I count up the number of people about whom I have data? And we basically say, look to the, um, the California-specific regula regulations so the CCPA, which basically has, there are, pretty uh, detailed, laid out definitions of what it, what it means to have data about people. And there'll, be, there'll definitely be some uh, conflicts and people are going to try to break the rules. And that's where the data relations board would basically need to come in and adjudicate and be an arbiter. But uh, basically, we, we do think that there's, there does exist decent regulation and examples. And 
and really cutting edge research in, in tax and tax law um, that would be able to address these concerns. And we don't obviously we don't think we're it's gonna not gonna be perfect at first, but it'll probably be better than the status quo. And it's something that can continue to be iterated on as well. I would add to that that there's um, there's always a when you're trying to sort of uh, think through a, a policy problem there's there's always a tension between uh, local and global, especially when you're dealing with something as inherently interconnected as data. So that if you think too uh, too locally, then you know the worry is either that there won't be enough traction on the problem at this local level, or that it will create some kind of problematic division between this locality and the rest of the society. And if you think too globally, then the problem becomes: is this feasible, or is it even responsible to to try a new policy on on this uh, you know gigantic global level? You know, whereas on the more local level, it's it's like a, you you know it's there's an argument you made that you're experimenting with policy, and if it works, then you, then it can be duplicated in other places. So there's there's always this local global um, tension, and I think that uh, my view is that. We have to start somewhere, and it's uh, it's it's okay to uh, you know it it it's it's very hard to answer uh, the question of what what the optimal place to start is, but but starting with a really well thought through uh, new policy on a local level is likely to be a step in the right direction. It's also likely to be a step in the right direction to take cautious, responsible steps towards smart policies at, at like a, a national or more global type level. So yeah, there's just always this sort of on the one hand, on the other hand, with that. Nick, you brought up data poisoning and data striking recently on another call. So I'm just imagining scenarios where, again, let's think of Facebook, and you have some people organizing to strike, and you have other people poisoning, and then you have some people, if the data dividend tax was passed, receiving the benefit. Is part of the problem with thinking about data as an individual, we should have individual agency that could possibly happen if we think about it that way. It's like, I'm not getting something and somebody else is. I'm going to strike Facebook and it disrupts the whole system. Maybe talk a little bit about what you saw with striking and poisoning and if that would be more beneficial or is that a, a yeah. preamble to getting Facebook there? So let, let me just like give a quick background on that. So um, actually some really recent work. So we, this is like a, a topic that's been in our minds for a while. And it's kind of a, a logical extension of just the whole data as labor idea going back to, I'm sure lots of folks in the radical exchange community have maybe had this train of thought as well, that okay, if data is labor, then well, there's a lot of historical ways that labor has, um, you know, gained power over over firms and, and uh, industries. And it's one of the, the biggest one of these labor strikes, or and even sometimes sectoral bargaining. But uh, Basically, if, if you can do a labor strike, well, and data is labor, then can't you do a data strike? That, that's kind of the, the chain of logic. And uh, more practically, like another simple way to put it is that if I'm giving you my data right now, and it's making your AI really good, and I stop giving my data, or I delete my data, um, or I mess it up, and I start lying, well, then your AI is not gonna be as good anymore. Um, that's like the, the super simple premise. And so some really recent work that I, I've done with uh, colleagues at Northwestern uh, has basically laid out this framework of data leverage. And data leverage is, is really kind of, um, on one hand, it's really broad, but on the other hand, it's also kind of nice and simple. So we basically say there's three ways, there's three data levers that uh, an individual or a group, or sorry, it's, it's really, in theory, an individual, but an, an, no, any individual is going to have too small of an impact. So a group of people can basically exert leverage over companies that depend on their data to fuel any sort of data-dependent technology. And so those three levers are data strikes. So that's you either 
uh, withhold your data or you delete it. So you say, you can't use my data anymore to make your system better. Uh, the second version is data poisoning. And that's where you say, I'm going to basically lie to your system. So maybe I, if I really hate a particular genre of music, I go and I uh, listen to a bunch of songs to try to basically trick that company into like making bad music recommendations to other people. And you can go really crazy on this. This is another area where the machine learning liter literature is rich. And there's some wild research where people have found really crazy ways to like do pixel level manipulations of images to mess up machine learning systems. And so you can get wild with this. And the third is conscious data contribution. And this basically says, okay, well, maybe the company's too big or I can't get enough people to do a data strike or data poisoning attack. Um, and so instead, I'm going to basically contribute data to a company that competes with them. And it's kind of like, it's a, the name is kind of a uh, allusion to like conscious consumerism, which has pros and cons for sure. Um, but so conscious data contribution is especially nice because data is non-rival. I can give my, if there's five new startups that I think are pretty ethical and are doing uh, some, are competing along about some machine learning technology, I can give my data to all five of them. Uh, that, that's, it's pretty easy to do. So those are the, the three data levers. And we basically pr propose that they could be used to exert leverage along a lot of issues. So there's a lot of issues in computing right now. Economic inequality, uh, exacerbated economic inequality is one, but uh, algorithmic systems that kind of reinforce societal biases is, is a huge one um, that there's a lot of like really rich and emerging. It's a, like a very active research area. There's content moderation, uh, debates about what should be moderated, who gets to, who gets to have a say in that. Um, there's environmental concerns that machine learning is going to, as it ramps up more and more, if there's exponential growth in machine learning, it could start to become a serious source of uh, emissions uh, and more and more and more and more. Basically, data leverage could be used for any of these things. And one of the things could be a data dividend. So the idea is that a giant, you know, statewide data strike could be used to say, to give Facebook an incentive to support a data dividend or to stop, uh, you know, lobbying against a data dividend law or a new data dependence tax law or something like that. The dynamics after it's passed are really interesting. Um, and so I, I don't actually, I don't have a super concrete answer on that right now. My guess is that it would basically be part of an ongoing conversation. So maybe there's a data strike to get uh, a statewide data dividend passed. And then some people decide they're going to do a conscious data contribution campaign um, to support a company that is like anti-data dividends. That's, that's totally possible. There could be definitely some, some dialogue and like a multitude of voices exerting data leverage in different ways. And uh, I think that'd be okay. Yeah, so sorry, that was a pretty dense answer. Um, but I just wanted to give that background because I thought it'd be helpful. Well, that sounds like a combination between shared and individual action. Uh, yeah, ultimately, I would say that in, I, I do think that, of course, individuals are, it's choices to participate in these things come down to individual choices, as is the case with, with uh, most collective action. Not all the time, but, but a lot of types of collective action uh, come down to individual choices. Um, and so that's, that's how I imagine. I think in the near term, all sorts of like kind of data leverage movements are going to be some combination of shared, shared and uh, individual. There's one question in the audience that you might have come across. Would it be a situation where each state would offer a new legal form to allow humans to incorporate their digital identity and then the state serves as like the data union? That is possible. So I don't think in our data dividends proposal, we don't really conceptualize the state as being a, a representative in our, in our intermediary in the same sense that it is in the Data Freedom Act. I don't know, maybe, maybe Matt and Clea can speak to this better than me. But I think it's a little bit different. But in theory, it could turn out that way. That, that is like a possible outcome. I don't think it's the one that we imagined. Is, is that what you all had in mind? Or? That's not exactly what I had in mind, uh, speaking for myself. But I'm curious, like, what, what sort of units of organization do, do you envision as the units of action in data leverage, like um, 
So, you know, is this sort of a, is it like community associations? Is it something like the sort of the uh, data trusts that, you know, uh, Sylvie Delacroix and Neil Lawrence have described in Europe? Yeah. Wh- who, do you, who do you imagine acting? Uh, yes, yes, and yes. So I'm going to do a hand wave here and say I, I definitely think that there are a lot of possibilities, but I'm going to unhand wave a little bit by giving you some concrete examples of, of things that I really do think are practical. And one of the big things we, we point out in this data leverage paper is that there's already, there are some undercurrents of data leverage already going on. Lots of people, there's a pretty rich literature on people like quitting uh, technology and social media for, for political and uh, protest reasons. And those people, like whether or not they were intending to harm Facebook's ad targeting algorithm, they did, assuming that with the relatively uh, not too controversial assumption that more data equals boost, diminishing boosts in accuracy. Um, so there's already people doing this. Uh, now to give you some, some concrete examples of like what are the units of data leverage. So one could be uh, basically following other forms of online collective action. So like things like hashtag activism and kind of using platforms like, like Twitter and Facebook, uh, these online platforms themselves to kind of disseminate a message to say like, hey, everyone don't use this app for, for two weeks or stop using this particular feature of the app because that feature like really gives them really rich data that's, that's quite good for uh, training a system. So that's one. Another could be local community. So for CDC in particular, conscious data contribution, there's a lot of potential for like local communities to rally around. And let, let's say there's a computer vision system that like detects trees would be useful to you. And there's a lot of the trees in your particular area that the place, the geographic region you live are underrepresented in existing computer vision data sets that community could kind of rally around and try to like take pictures and label pictures of trees to give to a company that's specifically going to compete in the computer vision sphere. Um, so there's opportunities to leverage online social networks. There's a lot of opportunities to leverage uh, physical local communities. And then also things like data trust that kind of automate the process are also really promising because no one wants to sit down and say, okay, what are the 20 data leverage movements I'm going to you know, join today. What? What? Uh, okay, there's 50 companies who all want my data. Which uh, I, I'm going to pick 25. Which ones are am I going to do? Like, no one's going to sit that. You know, do that while they're drinking their morning coffee. Um, and so that's where things like um, like trust and intermediaries will be really useful. I guess it remains to be seen uh, how, how large those will be. So I, I don't really want to speculate on the particular uh, the size there. But um, I guess basically, I think all three are actually are really plausible. And I'm not just saying that to you know show for my research. So. <laughs> So yeah, I want to go back to the self-sovereign identity. Can you maybe talk a bit about your ideal direction? So one piece of our work is, uh, you know, the technologies that are are on the cusp of sort of potentially having much wide, more widespread adoption is that we could own our own social graphs, right? So if I have the capacity to root you know, create an identifier for myself, or maybe many identifiers, I can use my own software agent to connect to each of you separately. And then between us and our software, we're connected, we're not using another intermediary like Facebook or Twitter, or, you know, pick, you know, whatever, to be connected. So then we as a tribe of people who have our own agent rooted social connections could could travel to places that we like their services and in interacting on those in those places we're generating data but you know we're also running that all through our own agents that are also seeing the data that we're generating collectively so i think it has the potential to change the power dynamics with platforms and tools and services and it's not that we wouldn't use those but that 
our social graphs aren't owned by them. They're owned by us as a collective um, public good, which I believe they are. Our social relationships should not be owned by corporations. So that I think would go a long way to sort of creating some of the power that people need to engage in some of the strategies that we're talking about. And so what work is being done in that direction? Well, I mean, if we we got really ambitious, I could pull out my Aries agent on my phone and we could exchange QR codes right here and we'd own our own social graph. Can we do a lot more than just message each other? No. But I mean, it's not, I'm not, I'm not hand waving and like, it's like the the early prototypes are actually working. And and so now it's how, how do we get meaningful applications that people love and drive adoption? So that's a direction like creating our, our new social networks and our new social platforms. Right, or, or ha- having a way potentially like that we as a, you know, a community or a tribe of people that's socially connected through our own agents, then showing up and saying, oh, we're here, provide us services. But it's, it's a different power dynamic than us having our identifiers within those systems owned by those systems. So one uh, just thought that I have, as a- and maybe you can sort of help my, my, I might just have sort of a naive perspective on this, but I've always thought that like self-sovereign, doesn't self-sovereign, like, because I agree with what you're talking about, but doesn't it need like a rebrand or something? Because it, it, if you're talking about self-sovereign identity, but then you're, but then you're also, you're talking about, you know, linkages between people, which sure. seems I, like look. intention with the idea of individual I didn't come up with a name. I think there's a lot of problems for a variety of reasons. I mean, we could call it decentralized identity. It's a whole suite of sort of tools that can do a bunch of things. And so it's a, it's a, I don't want to say it's like, it's not, you know, it's a little cluster of technologies that enable several different things. So, you know, one of them is, you know, government issued, (laughs) government issued identity documents in my little identity wallet that it does that too. But but back to what I was saying, I think it is apt is that I have my agent and my identifiers and I'm connecting to your agent and your identifiers. And we're not doing so through another piece of software that has the power to kill our digital representations of ourselves, which is what we have now. So yeah, totally. Um, I think that the 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 vision is is uh, something is I, I resonates with me completely. But uh, yeah, I just I've, I guess I've just always had this sort of uh, feeling that that there's a, a a tension between what people who you know deeply understand self sovereign identity are really talking about and yeah. what the and and what the words self and sovereign seem to imply. Sure. So I'm, I, you know, folks are watching or listening to this. If you want to come and help us rebrand, I'm happy to have support that conversation happening. I want to get to a couple of the questions because there are a lot of them. Uh, the one that's been upvoted the most is we know the problem and its effects, yet it is very theoretical. In practice, do we just delete Facebook, Twitch, et cetera? Which, Kalia, it sounds a little bit like that might be with a temporarily branded self-sovereign identity, your own OS. Yeah, I mean, I would say go, you know, get an agent. If you're technical, start engaging with our communities and help 
pick up the Lego bricks that we've spent a lot of time working on standards to exist and build stuff. You know, and I, you know, what should we do? I think try Mastodon. It's an early, you know, I don't know, but I do think we can, I would say come and join the folks working on building the alternatives. Don't just abdicate from the existing tools. All right, I have some thoughts here. I'm kind of formulating them though, so they might be a wee bit hazy. Um, so first of all, I would say that yes, if there's a company, if there is a company whose practices that you don't believe in, deleting them or using their... So there's uh, one thing we talk about in, in some of our uh, data leverage work and data strikes work is that you can... There are middle grounds here, so it's not always... You don't have to delete things because uh, folks in, in human computer action research and, and computer-supported cooperative work know that that's really hard. Just telling someone to delete Facebook is like not a, always too helpful. Like, what if what if Facebook is the only way you can talk to your grandmother? What if you need Facebook to see when your like work posts updates about if they're going to be closed because your boss is a bad communicator? You know, what if you you really like Facebook because your childhood friends on there? There's a lot of reasons that you wouldn't want to quit Facebook, and there's there's more. Uh, and this is like there's tons of rigorous research on the topic. So just saying just quit Facebook isn't necessarily helpful, but saying like oh use it less, use technologies like Mozilla's Facebook Container to that try to block Facebook when it tracks you on the web, so that you only at least give them data on the facebook.com domain and not on other domains. Um, there's middle grounds. That being said, I think like a pretty, one thing that will be exciting to look for going forward is if there's more explicit demands around these things. So there's been like, for instance, there was an Instagram boycott last September, I think led by a bunch of celebrities that was called Stop a Hate for Profit, I think. It was, a, it was a hashtag, basically a form of hashtag activism. And it was related to Facebook profiting off uh, like hateful advertising, basically. and. I, I don't know what the effects are. I mean, no one knows what the effects are except for uh, Facebook's, you know, internal. But uh, things like that that are basically centered around a specific demand and kind of pick up traction, which it, it's possible to do these in a disorganized manner, as we've seen uh, on the internet. And uh, I, I think that more of that will be helpful. And I also want to just like say that, that I, I'm not trying to be anti-tech company and say that everyone should delete every app and certainly not say that like all machine learning is bad. Um, or that all tech is bad. And a big, a big thing I hear a lot is that I'll, I'll talk about this research at, you know, at conferences with a lot of representatives from tech companies or folks who really like tech companies. And I, I like tech companies. That's why I, I you know, study computer science. And they'll say, oh, but you get so much, you get searches so good and you're getting so much free stuff. It, it can't be, what's wrong with this relationship? Why, why is there a problem? And to that, I would say that uh, it might be okay right now for some people, but the, the fact of the matter is that right now the relationship's really asymmetric and there's great potential for all these harms to become amplified in the future as uh, AI and, and data-dependent technologies become more powerful. And so that's why we should start worrying about it now. So we don't have to, I don't, I, I'm definitely not saying delete every app and like, you know, uh, every tech company is unequivocally bad. That's not at all uh, what we're trying to say, but rather that using explicit demands data leverage could start to change a lot of these relationships. That would maybe be how I frame it. I hope I didn't just incriminate myself. I mean, you can probably get some bad sound bites out of me uh, from that little spiel there. So, I don't know. I don't know who. Uh, I don't know which criminal authorities you're worried yeah. about, Nick. I, don't, <laughs> I think you're clean, though. But I, I really agree. I agree with what uh, both Nick and Kalia said. I, 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 in particular, agree that the best way to move things forward is to sort of is to engage with efforts to change the way things are working, whether those are are uh, technical projects like what. Uh, Kalia is talking about, or whether they're you know activist projects like Radical Exchange, um, or, or uh, you know the work on the kind of work on on data leverage that um, that that Nick is doing. We just need to um, 
it's entirely legitimate for us to ask for more. It's entirely, it's, it's, it's not only is it legitimate, it's, it's, it's correct. Like we're, we're not, um, we're not getting a fair deal. We're, we're all getting the short end of the stick in our relationship with these, uh, with the big technology platforms. I don't, I don't really think there's any reason to mince words about that. And, you know, you, you know, obviously technology companies are publicly held technology companies and their job is to serve their shareholders. But if you're not one of their shareholders, then that bargain isn't working out for you. So I think we should say this loud and clear, frankly. And um, I've been heartened in, in recent years that more people have, have recognized, for example, the way that a lot of these business models are, are distorting our political discourse. And, uh, but frankly, that's, that's just the, you know, that's the tip of the iceberg. I mean, there's a, there's sort of a very deep distortion of all kinds of social, uh, social relations and, um, that are, that are going on. And, uh, the, we need to become aware of it we need to, we need to talk about it clearly and see it clearly as an issue and name it and, and demand better, better policy and build you know, activist movements and, and technical projects that are addressing it. One of the next questions is probably, well, it can be for all of us, but it's addressed to me. What role can artists play? And this is linked in my mind to that theoretical um, accusation earlier <laughs> and how we, how we speak about all these things. It is very theoretical. It is, um, you know, lots of different opinions and trying to distill these one's own opinion into if you're an artist into a, a vision is extremely valuable and really needed at this time to try and see like where can we go instead of just where where are we going in this direction i mean we've been looking at uh, i've said this for a while now we've been looking at the worst case scenarios in you know the public realm of visions and stories films or, or just completely devoid of any better world or a better vision of where we could go. And I think that's something that artists can do and just anybody in general can, can try and imagine where they want to go, what kind of world they want to live in, and express that through stories and narratives, paintings, you know, films. So that's my answer, as well as engaging the public, engaging your communities in creative ways and playful ways or educational ways. So that's what I think artists can do. As well as, I mean, I just think everybody has is can be creative and has an artistic streak if they have the time to play with it. So art in a way is kind of playing and we just need to play more. Can I just say one more quick thing? On, yeah. I think another thing is that Part of what's so inspiring about Taiwan, part of the reason we talk about Taiwan so much, is that they kind of provide a model of a of a society that is has struck us a little bit of a different uh, bargain in the in the relationship between technology and, and democracy and society. Um, and I think that 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 shows that we can do better. We can. Um, it's 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 not a foregone conclusion that our relationship with uh, with data. A relationship with technology needs to be uh, needs to be a negative one. Needs to be you know avoided and, and harmful to democracy. Um, we can do a lot better, and there are 
these you know immense immense positive uh, network effects that come from these networks and that can be and that can be harnessed to uh, make life better for a lot of people. And um, so yeah, we need to we need to do that. I mean, my, I, I have a, I have I've always had a very complicated relationship with like pessimism and optimism and utopianism and so, like I think that we need to. Uh, we need to just see everything clearly. We just need to see that there there are negative things going on, and there are positive things going on, and there could be a lot more positive things going on, and and try to try to move towards that. So anyway, sorry. Positive network effects. Thanks, Matt. The other question was: Will there be an aggregator? So in the decentralized ownership data of data situation, how can we ensure that the positive benefits of the networked data are utilized? Yeah, I have some thoughts on this. Uh, can I answer this and then also briefly return to the... Yeah, 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 well? All right, so really quickly. So I have seen, um, and this is not my area of expertise, but I've seen some exciting, uh, some buzz around basically using some new technology. So for instance, the, the solid protocol is, is one thing. So I've, uh, there's a, a company, ITNI, who's working on building data unions, basically using uh, that protocol. I don't know the technical details, but uh, basically uh, it seems like there is pretty serious movement in this in this direction. And I know there's other data unions. There's a bunch of uh, folks who have actual data unions uh, in the radical exchange who are you know part of the radical exchange community. And um, I, I think that they probably have some pretty concrete technical answers to that question as to how that would work. Um, generally speaking, I don't think that we need to like demolish... Like it's entirely possible that there could be a future where you have a choice whether you're going to do some sort of uh, decentralized uh, ownership versus... I'm just going to keep using Facebook, but I'm happier with my bargain with them now because we were able to use data leverage to get them to change some of their practices we don't like. So this doesn't necessarily have to be a radical like deconstruction. Uh, it can be a gradual shift that involves basically, uh, you know, the, I think these things can coexist. That's my short answer. Uh, just on the previous question, I just did want to mention really quickly that there's a, a big problem right now is that I don't think that the academic research on the topic of, of data value and trying to measure data's value and whatnot is is being communicated to the a broader audience all that well, and that's where like art really needs to play a role. So the the theory of change that I guess that I take a lot in a lot of my work is that we if we do research to measure the value of data using techniques from machine learning and computational social science and statistics, etc., and then we build tools to leverage that. So like a tool that helps you join a data strike, a tool that helps you do, build data poisoning. This is kind of like a one-two process for doing change for for making changes. Like a I guess like a simplified version. Um, but if you just make your results available in academic papers, uh, no one, no one will ever read it and no one will ever know. Um, so it's, it's really critical to like, I mean, I guess things like, like activist organizations like Radical Exchange are, are doing a lot to maybe make these things known to a broader audience than would read academic papers. But artists can do, can probably beat that by an order of magnitude in terms of communicating messages around these things to an even broader audience and to, uh, people who, you know, maybe don't. Like some people just don't want to get the message via a scientific paper and they might be much more open to getting the message via an artistic medium. Uh, so that, that's a place where I think that like the academics need help desperately. <laughs> they need help very desperately on this front. So hopeful. I'm hopeful for that. So yeah, sorry. Those are my two answers real quick. <laughs> Thanks. Leah, do you have any, any thoughts? I mean, I think we'll see. I mean, like I said, I think that there's, it's not all one or the other, right? Like if I, if, if me and a group of folks who are leveraging a service, we can own our social graph and still be using the service and they can still be, you know, generating data off of our usage of it. Right. Um, and 
there there are ideas about communities and networks connecting together. If folks are interested, I'd recommend connecting to the My Data community that's working with entrepreneurs, building tools for people to collect and manage their own data. And if you're really nerdy, you can join me on the, I co-chair the Secure Data Store Working Group, and we're working on a specification for um, confidential data stores that hopefully will standardize all this so that you could take your data from one provider to another with no switching. Well, not no switching costs, but very low switching costs because there's an open standard that defines how to do it. So we have six minutes left. I'm really curious about two questions. So I think we've kind of come to understanding from this talk that there's certain agency as an individual and definitely shared data agency. I'm a bit worried about this space race we're kind of in with AI between the US and China and that that's going to conflict with us finding true potential and fair uses of data. I think in China there's a sense that it is shared and there's a very different cultural approach to data and its uses and AI and technology that in the US it's it is a little bit more individualized and we're probably standing in our own way. But do you think that ultimately this kind of competition between countries with AI is detrimental and that ultimately we're going to come up to this wall. Yeah, I have a quick thought on that, (laughs) which is that I think it's, I think it's pretty uh, task dependent. Like I think it might be useful to like kind of look at the different races, like specific to the actual like AI tasks that you're talking about, because for instance, for targeted advertising, I don't think that the world is, I don't think we desperately need the top tech firms in the U S and the top tech firms in China to share their, training data to create the ultimate global targeted advertising model. I don't think that we'll, the human, you know, humanity will gain utility uh, from that happening and in fact, make a negative utility. The same can be said about a lot of other AI technologies. So facial recognition is one that the researchers in that area have found that there's a lot of cases where it's just, it can't be used without, without harm or it tends to produce more harm than it does uh, good for the world. Uh, so for basically all these cases where there's these technologies, uh, credit scoring, psychometric profiling, are a couple other examples that uh, maybe maybe you can find some ways to use them for good, but oftentimes they they not for good. Uh, so for these things, we don't really even want the governments of the world necessarily, uh, you know, merging their heads together and creating this ultimate AI to produce even more harm than a single government can do right now. On the other hand, for like military applications, I think the space race analogy uh, is maybe a little more accurate and a lot more concerning. Um, another nice thing is just the diminishing returns mean that uh, basically each company is like. AI performance is probably pretty close to the diminishing returns mark already, right? If we already, if the U.S. has 99% and China has 99% accuracy on some task, uh, it, it doesn't particularly matter if they merge. I mean, they might there might be uh, you know geographic specific effects where if it's uh, detecting trees or doing uh, things moving around the world, um, you need training data from the particular region that you want your technology to operate in. Uh, but in general, yeah, I, I guess so. My short answer is that it's really task dependent. And for a lot of tasks, it's actually we don't want the governments of the world to merge their heads together, I think. Yeah, that makes sense. Okay. Uh, One more minute. Do you want to all end with a last thought? Individual versus shared? Both. (laughs) Both. Thank you. Thank you for your time. And thanks for everybody for joining. 
I hope this answered some of your questions, individual versus shared, and that we we think it's both. And please reach out, join Radical Exchange, uh, get involved. Also, Kalia's identity workshops, get in touch with Kalia when you want to learn more about self-sovereign identity, as long as it's named that for now. We'll be posting also, Nick, your paper. Adatadividends.org. Please go visit that so you can read what was recently published. And thank you all very much. See you soon. Thank you to the panelists for that conversation. Thank you, Jennifer Marone and Leon Erickson, the producers of Radical Exchange Replayed. Thanks everyone for listening and have a great weekend.